Welcome back to Money for Nothing, a podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and as always, I'm with Sam Backer. And today we are joined by David Turner of Penny Fractions, a must-read weekly newsletter on the music streaming business. David, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty well this afternoon. Nice, nice. So today we're here with you to, I guess, bring into question or re-examine some popular narratives, uh, specifically around major record labels, music streaming, and that story that we've all heard about how Napster took down the major labels momentarily in the early 2000s. But if I uh, if I understand correctly, you uh, you call bullshit on this. I absolutely call bullshit on this. It's one of my least favorite tropes in music business writing and tech writing. Tech writing is very heavily, they love saying a 19-year-old took down the entire music industry, which doesn't <laughs> make any sense whatsoever. And it's kind of horrifying if you were to like take it at face value. So maybe let's just start by like, for anyone who's managed to be under a rock, I'm wondering, Dave, can you just tell us like, you kind of gestured towards it, but do you think you could just like, um, pull it from deep in your soul and, and replicate that <laughs> incorrect narrative for us. Yeah, but bring us back to the heady days of Y2K. Yeah, the heady days when Y2K was going to ruin the ruin everything. Um, so the basic narrative, which I think I would say, I would sort of cite the book as I'm looking at it right now, Appetite for Self-Destruction, sort of lays out, which is that the music industry sort of got a little too high on its own supply in the 90s. There was the, obviously, CD sales were just sort of booming, booming, booming. It was a disco stew. Things were only going up, up, up. And then in the, in the late 90s and sort of essentially around 2000, 2001, the CD bubble sort of like peaked. And sort of you would see the record sales of Eminem and, C and Sing, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears. And as those sort of artists sort of started not falling by the wayside or anything, but started seeing their sales of their subsequent albums sort of start declining, all of a sudden it was that, CD sales started started precipitously falling throughout the 2000s. So in the and so in like the late 90s with the introduction of Napster, there was sort of this idea that like, oh well, it was piracy. Piracy was sort of the big issue that sort of took down the music industry. So it was that with the introduction of Napster and and pirating, people were no longer buying music. Everyone was just illegally downloading music, which accounted for why the music industry sort of tumbled. And in that account, it's sort of that Napster, which really only existed for like barely two years, was such enough of a big force that it was able to sort of take out a multi-billion dollar industry to a shadow of its former self. And I guess that's sort of the basic idea. So by the time that Napster sort of was closed up by 2001, the music industry was on its way sort of down on its sort of downfall and thus all the rest of the 2000s and even the first half of the 2010s a lot of that just sort of precipitous fall can be placed at the feet of of sean of sean fanning and sean parker i guess it makes sense when you say that tech writers love it because in some ways it's um it's something we've talked about a little bit before but music does have um for reasons i'm not i still don't a hundred percent understand um Noise by Jacques Attali, who's this French theorist, talks about this a lot. This idea that, for a number of reasons, music is often a leading indicator, that it happens there first. And I think that in in, in tech journalism, uh, uh, the idea that, you know, they're on the side of this innovative, disruptive tech force that has, you know, powered by individual teenagers of genius and their ability, like you said, to disrupt this, like, old, fuddy-duddy industry um, it, it makes sense that that narrative, you know, in a moment of Steve Jobs, in a moment 
where uh, the leading edge of American capitalism is being described not as like same old thing, slightly different corporate form, slightly different extractive form, but as somehow value creating masters of the future. Like that narrative makes a lot of sense why why it'd get picked up and why it, it would it would travel so effectively. Yes, and then also one of the other things that throughout the eighties and nineties, the music industry did itself no favors. It was also, I mean, there was, it's sort of funny to think about, I guess the recent Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion song, um, that sort of has become very, very controversial and gone a lot of like weird culture war. Yeah, it is like it's the 90s again or something. <laughs> like where, where's Tipper Gore telling us about how, you know, we need to put like a label, a censor on this. Absolutely. And that's the kind of thing that I feel like for folks that are, I want to say actually folks that are under 21 at this point may honestly not have had that many music related culture wars but in many decades i mean throughout the i mean the history of the 20th century of music has endless of these kind of culture wars battles over sexuality and in the 80s and 90s there were plenty of those in music so it became a lot easier to sort of be like oh well the music industry is sort of that crass place that has like two live crew or like madonna and all that kind of like yucky bad stuff so on one end there were people that were always sort of against that and then on the other end, it was like, oh, well, the record labels are charging us too much money for CDs, which is true. And they, were, and they were trying to sort of exploit the consumer, which was true. So it's kind of like there are enough like threads there that if you wanted to put, place all of it onto Napster as sort of it being sort of a corrective, a corrective, a corrective to these sort of broader industry sort of ills, I get that impulse. I really, really do. But I just don't think it really explains or gives enough context to what actually was happening that led to sort of the bubble burst in the, in the early aughts. And then sort of also why, and why also the industry has sort of come back in the form that it has come back. Because I feel like if you assume that Napster destroyed the industry, it's hard to explain how Spotify brought it back in a way. But that's also seemingly never really contrasted really with most of these kinds of accounts. So let's let's do it. Let's go back. Let's try to figure out I guess how the music industry got to where it was in in the two thousands, um, which and we talked a little bit before this, but which I mean, UC is going back to the seventies, right? Not earlier. So I think where I ended up sort of going back to, and I and I was telling this to Sam earlier, where I tried to do some more research about the re- record industry in the sixties, in the sixties and early seventies, and maybe when I could write a book or just have some more time, I could like get really deep deeper into that but essentially by like the 70s the record industry was sort of becoming what we kind of see as i want to say sort of the like hollywood caricature of the record industry where you were like selling like selling records you had big albums like that was sort of like what was sort of happening there and then when you had the sort of like disco bubble which happened in the late 70s you have the disco bubble burst but again the disco bubble bursting again i sort of want to like point out it's like a lot of it had to do more of just like formats. It's just like we kept introducing new, like new formats over time. And as we sort of introduced new formats and then the popularity of those formats started waning, there would end up being sort of new formats that sort of come along, but there would always sort of be this sort of like moment over like one format's going down, but the other is not quite risen. So in the early eighties, actually, there was sort of like this trough of, of like the overall industry's revenue had sort of like, we're sort of like, we're, we're going down, we're going downward, but CD sales, at that point, we're not a thing yet. CDs were not were not quite yet a thing. 
single sales were also sort of like were also sort of going downward. So like it wasn't until around like 1983, 84 when CDs actually themselves started to like started to actually like show up show up on sort of revenue chart, and that sort of like so, sort of started happening then. Yeah, no, that that makes total sense. And I mean, the collapse of the record industry, and, and it's important, I think, to, to kind of put like a real pin on that, which is that, I mean, we've said this before, like the record industry is a particularly cyclical industry. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. Some of it's about uh, music sales being kind of like um, really dependent on other, you know, you can put it off. You don't necessarily need to buy the album if like things are going bad. Some of it's also generational. You pointed to changes in formats kind of disrupting the record industry. I also wonder about the baby boomers, right? By the mid-70s, you're getting the tail end of the baby boomers leaving teenage, like peak music teenage consumption years. And you have them kind of entering increasingly like early adulthood. If you think about like flower child into like slicked back hair suspenders, like that move. You know, the Eagles, we're talking about the Eagles here. And so like, they're still, you know, huge. I mean, Eagles are earlier, so maybe that's not a. I mean, the Eagles aesthetically, Eagles is actually a terrible example. But I just feel like um, some of this is like, yeah, like people are leaving their peak music purchasing years. I, I wondered if that had anything to do with it. So I was reading a lot of Cashbox magazine a few weeks ago, and ca- and there was sort of like sort of recurring theme of just sort of concern about there not being a nice diversification. In, in the industry. I think in this sense, it meant more of that, like there weren't enough of various sort of demographics buying records. It was like, there's only certain people are buying records and we need to expand that out further and further if we're actually gonna see sort of upward, continued upward growth. So that was always kind of a concern throughout the seventies. And also it's sort of reflected in the fact that like even Wall Street, so like there are a number of articles that I was sort of looking at where like Wall Street sort of analysts would sort of look at the record industry and one, question all sales they just didn't believe that things were selling what they actually were selling which was a correct assumption and then they also were like well if things aren't really selling as well as we think they are and it seems pretty clear that there's not like a real and that there's this kind of looking at only a very limited demographic how can we really trust investing into this for the long term when there are these sort of big questions like on face value that, that, that need to be addressed the narrative that i've also read around this time period around the 70s and i'm thinking you know i'm referencing more from books like uh, oral histories like like please kill me you know about the the downtown 70s 80s like punk scene was that the music maybe along with the record industry became bloated you know i'm thinking like you had like elo <laughs> you know and like you know and then so what you're having is that you're having a lot of these subcultures sort of bubble up or subculture music scenes bubble up you know disco in new york uh you know punk also in new york and so i'm wondering if like kind of similar if there's if ever it's worth drawing a similarity to like the late 90s early 2000s of how and to the 70s and basically i wonder if there's a similarity in how maybe the record industry kind of like got out of touch and also got kind of high on its own supply and like there was a kind of these things going on it kind of like stopped really paying attention to like cultural trends and the way things were changing and maybe this goes back to the way both you and sam were talking about how the music industry is cyclical i think that's interesting i guess like i'm sort of contrasting to the 90s because in the 90s 
there was like electronic, like, so if we go for examples, like you have something like electronica, which was like a really top down, like way to try to commodify, which was a very disparate thing of all the various forms of dance music since the late eighties through the nineties, right, right. which had right. tons of like one off, there are tons of like one off, like house hits in the early nineties, but electronica was the real, like, how do we make this into sort of more of like a album rock thing that can sort of have a broader appeal beyond just like clubs, which I guess is just more of a way of saying beyond black people and like gay people. So you have to figure out a way to sort of like do that. And I think, and you can see that throughout the nineties of like, I mean, even rap at a certain point where we got more regional variants of rap that get brought, that get brought into the major label system. And then like the right. rise of country throughout the nineties where country music is like a big, 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 big seller throughout the, throughout, I mean, still actually it's still a big seller today, but it was, it became like, it sort of like came to its own throughout the nineties where like, Artists who could sell seven, eight million or 10 million records, a lot of those were ended up being like country acts as well. So it does seem, so I actually do feel like the industry is actually not too bad about sort of keeping up with these trends. But eventually I think it's that like, some of them are more profitable than others or they sort of like run out. So if disco was just like, it just had a short shelf life. Same with punk. It's like not like there was like a ton of successful punk, punk like records or groups in the United States at least, in the UK, and other places that was they had a little bit more actual real success. But like in the United States, it really was like there weren't like top ten like top ten punk hits or anything like that. I wonder like um about like the, the the major versus indie balance of power and the way that allows new sounds to percolate up. Because my sense about you know capsule history of like the '60s into the '70s is like '60s you get a lot of early 60s, there's a lot of indie stuff, mid to late 60s, major labels kind of reassert themselves by throwing around the money to sign all the big rock groups. Major labels figure out how to do rock music through the 70s. By the end of mid to late 70s, they're like, again, like this idea of the dinosaurs, they're huge and with big budgets, they're spending money to make money, this idea, like where they, you know, falsifying records, falsifying uh sales totals they do this thing where like um they're allowed records are allowed to return from stores so to make a gold record they'd ship enough records to hit a gold declare that they had a gold record and then get all the returns <laughs> to justify a- additional claims uh so so i mean I, I just wonder like um whether again in, in the late 70s you have this moment with the rise of new wave with the rise of punk where and a lot of those are fairly successful indie labels, the biggest ones that then get sucked back in over the 80s. Yes, I think that sort of, if, if we want to sort of keep going chronologically, I think that sort of gets to one of my first, like I made a Google Doc, like thinking through this and one of the first, like actually not the first point, the second point, the third point, but one of the big ones is like consolidation, which is sort of never really discussed in a lot of these quick histories, especially ones that would center on Napster, is the consolidation that happened across the record and the recording and publishing industries throughout the 80s. This is a product I should work more on, but it's to figure out like the real breakdown of majors into how few were left at the end of it. But there was constant consolidation across the major labels by the eight in the throughout the eighties. So by the eighty by the end of the eighties, you had like Sony, you had Warner, you had EMI, you had this like only really a handful of labels left, like a real like handful, like maybe like five or six major labels. 
which was not the case only 10 years prior. There were like the biggest, there were like the big labels still, but there hadn't quite consolidated quite down to just a handful. And I think one reason I sort of think of this a lot is that I think there's a lot of, like again, just sort of speak more colloquially, there's a lot of like shorthand understanding that like major labels are bad and that there are only a few major labels and that there are only a few major labels is bad. But there's never really to me as much articulation even just sort of like pop again in like popular discourse about like well how did we get only a few major labels it's sort of as if like history sort of began in the mid 80s and it's like oh well music has always only had a few major labels and they were always corrupt and bad and thus well there's no that's never really been different and and in some ways that's correct if we keep going further and further back record label deals i mean as you guys have talked about before it's not like record label deals in the early 20th century were much better than they were in the in the 80s or 90s or even right now but it is sort of a real categorical difference to have to have like sony buy cbs records and have sony like sony itself one of the biggest one of the biggest sort of like entertainment sort of like media companies also like technology companies own one of the biggest major labels like that is like a fundamentally different thing cbs also owning cbs records itself was extremely problematic for a lot of reasons but it is like it's you start seeing the consolidation happening in that direction and i think that actually accounts for a lot of the issues that we would start seeing throughout more of the 90s where labels started looking at like how can we really start pulling money out of like out of these sales in ways that they weren't even really doing throughout the 80s and the 70s as well. One of the crazy things for me um, in doing some research before this conversation was I knew like major labels, but what's weird is you don't actually, as a music consumer, and I guess like I knew this objectively, but I didn't know this in lived experience, which is that you don't actually see the names of the major labels on the products that they sell you. It's like Epic and Mercury. Um, I mean, Warner's the exception maybe, but all of the records that you buy are small labels within a major label. So you think like Interscope or, um, you know, pick a label, it's actually owned by a major. And so in some ways, the, the amount of power that they have is masked by the branding that they've maintained for the end consumers. Yeah, that's something that, again, is like constantly discussed in like punk and sort of 80s in the, in indie labels, like small like smaller labels like that. That's like constantly referenced and, and spoken about that like, hey, you see like an imprint that supposedly supposed to look like an independent label, but is actually just part of a big, a, 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 a bigger major label. And I always feel like that's sort of where like, the critique, I don't, I don't want to say the critique ends there, but there's sort of a little not enough like backwards to be like, okay, why or how did this happen that these labels got so massive that what they also understand is we need to look like an indie. We need to have a feel of an independent label. You, no one's going to be excited by buying a, a Sony record, like a Sony prop, like a Sony CD. We need it to be epic. Or no one's going to be excited to buy something from Universal Music Group, so we need it to be like Atlantic or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or like th they started pulling that thing where they would have one of their big artists like start their own subsidiary. So, you know, Fred Durst or, you know, Eminem suddenly like have their own label. And I, I remember even Don't come back then, you know, reading... Well, yeah okay they, i don't even remember yeah uh, but i remember reading back then you know this is like making headlines and like billboard or like spin or whatever i was reading and thinking to myself 
even then I was like, okay, so like, what does that mean? You know, it just seems like, and in, and I don't know in a weird way, I don't know. I'm sure that, that, you know, a Fred Durst or whoever was making maybe more of a cut by like signing people to their like subsidiary, like maybe I'm assuming, but it, it, it just also seemed like, you know, that thing that happens sometimes, like, you know, if you like work at a restaurant or a bar and they're like, Hey, we'll pay you a dollar more if you manage the place. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. I'm a manager. And then you're like, wait a minute. I'm doing like way more work now for like barely any more money. And I have so much more responsibility. Why am I doing this? That's how it kind of felt like, but I don't really, I still to this day, I would have to, I have to admit, like, I don't actually know what the numbers were like. I don't know if like Eminem or whoever was actually making more of a cut by like having their own subsidiary and signing like, you know, D12 or something. See, that's one of those things where, like, we'd have to sort of go through, like, on a case-by-case basis to sort of see, like, how, right, how that right. ended up sort of shaking out. But I think, broadly speaking, it just sort of cre- it created this sort of idea that, like, what you should be aspiring to as sort of an artist of that scale is that you get signed to a major, and then you yourself are going to sign other artists, and then those artists potentially might be able to, like, have their own sub-labels and all this other kind of stuff. And I think it's... It's a pyramid itself, scheme, almost. It's a, it's a pyramid scheme because it also create sort of this weird like conflict where people are like oh well it's really bad if you get signed to like uh i'm just gonna pull a random one like it's bad if you were signed to, like gucci Mane's label because gucci Mane doesn't actually care about the artist and he's not going to support them where other rappers are going to actually support the artist and it's like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute they're all signed they're all all their checks are being signed from the same person that's like 17 steps removed from this so why are we sort of getting into this sort of like inter-artist bickering about like who was the better like manager when that's not at all really what their job should be. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. it ends up sort of creating this sort of like tension that like is an intra-artist tension that didn't, that, again, this is sort of a vaguely newer thing that sort of happened throughout the 90s and the aughts, but it's something that is, I don't know, it's something that like is it's sort of understood as bad, but I don't think it's really quite ever contextualized as being like, well, it's bad because like ultimately their bosses are still the same. Not that it's, oh, because some rapper or some rock band is a bad manager. Like that's not really what they are supposed to be doing. That's not what they signed up for really. It also sort of suggests that having an independent label outside of the parent major label is like really difficult and not going to make you money. So in a way, it's also suggesting that like, yeah, they're also I mean, killing indie labels in a sense, or like at least hurting them. Or like, if you want to join an indie label, you're doing it because like, y- you love it, not because you're gonna make a living at it. it. It undermines it. It undermines the concept of indies, which is a very like a thing that throughout the 2000s and early, I feel like throughout the through th- 2000s, that was constantly remarked upon as indie rock, like indie rock became part of the mainstream was sort of the like distinctions between being like oh well that's an indie rock artist that's on a major label that's a big indie like an excel or rough trade right yeah that's like a really small actual indie label that may have some distribution and then genuine diy hey we just made some tapes and we can handle all the stuff because we've been doing this for forever. But like, we do not have the distribution of even a slightly bigger indie, much less a big indie, much less a major. And like, the blurring of all of that is something that a lot of folks, I mean, older folks than myself, as being 28, have were always very like, and had a lot of animosity towards because rightfully they could have saw that like their scenes and their spaces were being co-opted by these bigger by these bigger companies, but it's kind of one of the things where it feels kind of hard to explain that 
without sounding yeah. a bit like grumpy, like, oh, well, you're losing, like, you're losing, like, cool or something. But it's like, actually, no, it really is hurting the overall music economy at the smaller level through these machinations at the top that are not really that should be sort of like pointed out yeah i want i want to i want to dive dive into uh the 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 main topic about about spotify and kind of deconstructing that but i do want to mention something off of that that you know i remember being a sort of naive music fan at this time and remembering I, I, I i remember remarking to my friends about how i felt like there was this whole restructuring going on of like the underground or whatever, the underground music and not really understanding the music business enough to like really understand why, but it definitely feeling like, you know, a band that I was into and I was like ordering their record or their CD by like mail order or like some like web 1.0, you know, website or like through MySpace or something suddenly was like opening up for like, like some major band and like an, in an arena or like a, like a huge concert hall and me being like, well, that's good for them. And like wanting them like thinking in my head very simply like, Oh, well they're probably making more money and that's a good thing. But then just feeling like everything was being restructured and like gobbled up by, by what I, what I coined as like the mainstream or like at the time. Yeah. Not realize, not really understanding that this is just like, basically, you know, I'm going to, this is a very simplified version of it, but basically this is just like, capitalism gobbling up culture <laughs> i wanted to go back to something david that, that you said that that was super useful and super important about consolidation and that's i think that there have always been major labels in american music right and and just really briefly the traditional def- de- definition which will maybe get us towards why it doesn't make sense in the same way anymore is that a major label was any label that owned its own for- distribution that had national distribution, was actually able to physically press the records and get them to stores across the country. Um, And a minor label maybe didn't own that, didn't have national distribution, oftentimes had to sign with the major labels to do that. And I think what you're pointing out that's incredibly useful is while there always have been major labels in American, the American music industry, they have not always been the same. And it's the same way that like, there have always been rich people. But the level of rich person that we have now makes everyone who is rich in the 80s look like total chumps. And I think a similar thing happens in the music industry where there are big, like Warner Bros is a bit, Warner's a big label in the 70s. But it is nothing compared to Universal in the 90s where, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like the Seagram Air buys one record label and then buy, he buys RCA, I think? Yeah, I think it's MCA. I think, okay, so he buys MCA and then buys, basically goes on a, a buying spree and buys a ton of smaller, like big but small island records as an example, right? Virgin records, these big but small indies and all of a sudden puts this conglomerate together that's the second or... I think the second or maybe the biggest music label um, by market share. Yeah, it's the biggest. Obviously, I'll just sort of say it. the market share thing is always kind of a little like it ebbs flows. And it's there's no, I have yet to see a really good like graph or anything that showed that over like a 40 year period. Cause probably because it's a little confusing to, to actually like mark all that out. But everything you're saying right there is absolutely correct. I think that's actually that is also replicated on the publishing side. And one of the reasons I find it interesting on the publishing side is because publishing I guess, like, I was reading about this um, one guy, um, Freddie, like, I want to say Beinstock, 
um, who essentially, like, throughout the 60s, like, started buying up publishing rights. Just, like, slowly just started accruing publishing rights. He worked with Elvis, and he worked with Elvis in, like, the 50s and 60s, and then just slowly sort of, like, started buying, like, started buying this up as time sort of went on throughout the 60s and the 70s. And so by the time that, like, he started, like, wanting to, like, reach out to other folks, the only kind of people, the kind of money that he needed meant that he had to start going to, like, bigger financial institutions. And then that's sort of when like publishing in the early 80s sort of started being like, oh, this is now incorporating, incorporating like, okay, well, we need bank money because we need to get millions of dollars. This isn't something that like a few like moguls in the industry can just keep on buying it. There's sort of like you reach sort of like a plateau where you have to get to that next level, which I think goes to the thing that I, to go back to the consolidation, it's like, well, publishing again, like, Publishing is mostly pretty like sleepy, a pretty like boring part of the industry, and one that people are like, oh well, that's pretty fine. Like it's like not super, it's not flashy. It's not the flashy part of the industry, and it remains still not very the like flashy part of the industry. But the exact same kind of consolidation you just described with Universal Music Group happened in publishing as well. It's just that in publishing, it was less, it was more behind the scenes, and also it's happened at like a slightly slower pace. So you have, it hasn't sort of seen the like, oh, there are now only three publishers, even though there really are only like a handful of, there are probably like more like four or five publishers that matter. And then like a number of things like the, like the, like hypnos, like stuff like that, this kind of in this like increasingly large periphery of publishing. But that is again, a thing that I think in many ways, like hypnos to me can go back, can be charted back to the eighties as soon as there started being more banks that, like, as soon as Wall Street, which, like, Billboard and Cashbox have plenty of articles from the 80s where Wall Street analysts are just sort of like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This industry seems fine now. I think we can maybe, like, start saying, like, you can start investing in this. And also, like, if you're into publishing, you just, like, buy it, and it just sort of makes money. Don't even have to, like, think too much about it. Obviously, trends ebb and flow, but if you invest enough, then it doesn't, then you can kind of sort of, you can sort of move throughout all sort of like the waves of trends that happen because you have such a, you have enough catalog that it doesn't really matter if you have a slightly worse quarter because one genre or something kind of got slightly more popular or less popular. So that also like, I guess like that's something I also like very much wanted to like foreground for like discussion of like why the industry sort of had this bubble brewing in the nineties is because like consolidation was happening at both ends. And then also the other big one is deregulation of, radio and all the consolidation happening across radio which means that by again the 90s you have clear channels essentially like staking out its claim to be like well we see all you other companies but like good luck in the next 20 years surviving just good luck trying to do that so so what we have now for kind of painting this picture right we've got increased label consolidation we've got the rise of CDs, which we've touched on a little bit, but is this major new technology. It allows the labels to charge a lot more per album. If we're talking about the baby boom, it gets the baby boomers to buy their entire catalog of beloved music again, which drives consumption for like 15, 20 years almost. And and my sense is also that it, I mean, I could be wrong here, but I, I assume that this massive cash flow these these are intertwined stories that the massive cd cash flow into major labels allows 
more Wall Street money and then creates the conditions for further consolidation. Yes, I was going to say one of the big stories that I always like love citing is just the is the um the collusion between major labels in the 90s to keep keep up CD prices. So like throughout the 90s, it was, I mean, I guess like throughout the 90s until the early aughts, like CD prices were like getting higher and higher and higher. And that was not the market itself working. That was collusion between, collusion, great word, that was been ruined the last few years, collusion between major labels to keep CD prices high. So that instead, Instead of having it so like, well, maybe we should charge like $11.99 or $12.99. Like, no, got to keep that like $18.99 sticker price. And the other, another thing that I know, again, I'll give a shout out to Advertiser Self-Destruction, has a small section on this, which is very good. I've mentioned two sections where it talks about the, incre- like the increase in consolidation of like even music retail spaces. So suddenly, this is really, really hard for me to imagine, but I was reading old articles from the 70s to remember this, is that like music retail used to be a big thing. Like it used to be able to find mom and pop retailers that were not sort of niche record stores of just sort of like hipster varieties or whatever. Like there used to be lots of smaller independent, like smaller retail, like smaller record stores or big chain record stores as well. But Throughout the 80s and then into the 90s, consolidation of sales essentially moved it only to like Walmart and Best Buy. Walmart and Best Buy started increasingly dominating CD sales. And so one of the things that also sort of starts happening with that is that Walmart in particular has more say over the content that, that, that ends up being sort of, that ends up being displayed and ends up being promoted and marketed. And which I guess is kind of slightly different, a slightly different tale, but it's one that broadly speaking sort of parallel so as you have the rise of universal music group a lot of universal music groups sales are going to be happening at walmart's and best buys which is fairly different than 20 years prior where you actually were going even if you were a major label you were selling to all these various smaller chains and small and smaller independent record stores and that consolidation sort of kept like sort of happening there as well and then the other thing that I really love a lot of these stories that were in Salon in the like Salon or Slate in the early aughts about rec- about um, payola about payola in this era because the price that it cost to promote a song to radio kept increasing more and more and more. So like the book Hitman Power Brokers and like in the music industry, I, I know I said that title wrong, but I always say it wrong. But like Hitman that that book essentially describes what happened throughout the 60s to the 80s of the record industry and sort of the rise of payola and like mob connections deep recommend that book that book is so much fun so much fun and also like so many people who are lauded just acting terribly it's very very good but one of the things that book because it came out in 1990 it doesn't foresee what happens throughout the 90s is that as you have deregulation across commercial radio and then you also sort of have consolidation of the retail space, there's a need to have CDs hit. You have to make sure CDs are actually selling or selling, I'm gonna use scare quotes, you have to make sure that is actually happening. So to get that, you need to promote the CD or promote the album. And that leads to inflated music video budget prices, which sort of peak in the 90s, but that's where you see like million dollar like music video shoots or multi-million dollar music videos. And then you also sort of see that suddenly records like um not records but like promoting a song to radio costs like six figures or at some point seven figures just for like to sort of say that again it's like if it costs a million dollars to promote your song to radio 
only a very few artists are going to be at that scale. And those artists are going to have to be coming through the major label system. And those artists are more than likely going to have to be hitting at Walmart and Best Buy. Because otherwise, how are you going to ever recoup upon that? And I think yeah. that's sort of the like big, like once those sort of uh, threads start connecting to me, like that's where like the bubble starts sort of building up and building up there. Something we've talked about a lot uh, uh, on the show is the ways in which, like, the human demand for music is fairly inelastic. Like, people really want music, but the way it's made a commodity or not is, like, really specific. And so one of the things that in, in that regard we've talked about is, like, the rise of touring as, like, a major profit center for the music industry now. But one of the things that's interesting about record stores, and especially if you talk to people, um, like, I got a little bit of this, but, like, people who like talk about record stores as central cultural points for their experience of music is that if you've got these independent retailers as like a major section of the business, not as an afterthought, not as an indie thing, what you have is like a culture of record buying and record consumption where like the music thing that you do, the culture of the music that you do is um, in these record stores. And by cutting away at that like that, Really, it makes it so music is, even before the rise of downloading or anything else, music is a super transactional thing. You go to a Best Buy, you buy the record, it's not, you're not engaging in a cultural zone that's, you know, which is not replaceable by downloading. But yeah, man, like uh, Napster or Best Buy is, is a pretty equivalent experience in terms of like its social dynamics. Yes, yes. And I think also that in some ways, for certain folks, Napster creates a, a more interesting social dynamic. You actually get more connection. You actually get to like have more community that can be formed there than just going to your regional Best Buy. Obviously, I'm sure someone can sort of say, well, I really liked it. Like Best Buy sold like Madlib CDs. So I thought that was really, really cool. So like, I think there's kind of, I can sure I could find like one off example, but I think broadly speaking, that is a very, very good point. And the point about touring, it's also very, very important because the 90s also see the rise of like live like live nation and ticketmaster and the whole like pearl jam ticketmaster fight of the early of the early 90s is sort of predates a lot of the stuff that would happen throughout the 2000s of like 360 deals and sort of this idea that record labels should own everything that you produce as an artist and that is really only makes sense once things have consolidated across all the various parts of the music industry ecosystem. Because the idea of a 360 deal, when you can sell things to an independent record store yourself, and you can still like actually promote a song to radio yourself, like when it's still actually possible to do all of those other things, why would you ever have a reason for a 360 deal to exist? But it makes more sense when the barrier to entry to radio is too high, the barrier to entry to get into a major retail chain is too high, and all of these other mechanisms essentially become out of reach for the average like artist, or even the above average artist to a certain extent after a while. One other thing I did want to mention in a sort of similar parallel, because the 90s I think really showed this is that music videos and MTV. So one of the things is that MTV in the 80s is like, partly hated by the music industry because they feel like they should be making more money off of MTV and all the like stuff that is happening there. But they begrudgingly accept that MTV is a great way to do promotion and all of that. But as MTV throughout the, like starting with the real world, the classic, like starting with the real world through the end of TRL moves away from music programming. That is just, again, another thing that slowly like strips. So by the end of the MTV era, 
of the early aughts, the only music you're seeing is top tier pop major label content. Your content. You're never seeing like smaller artists. You might see like a random indie band that's in between a commercial interstitial or something random like that. Or if you have like MTV 73, you may get some of the more fun music video stuff. But by like the odds, by like this like post bubble burst, uh, bubble burst odds, that, that entire like idea of getting to MTV is entirely off, off the map. And now obviously most critics of MTV since the early 80s would say like MTV was always selling out and being on MTV was always a bad thing for like artists and didn't represent something actually good for culture. But I would just sort of say that like, broadly speaking, I would agree with that. Broadly speaking, I would agree with that. But it was just another thing that was an option for people to do genuine music discovery that was taken, that was slowly lost throughout the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah, you stop, you stop seeing like Headbangers Ball or like even I remember even Beavis and Butthead and I'm totally aging myself here, but even like Beavis and Butthead, there'd be the time when they'd be chilling on the couch and there'd be like a Guar video and I'm like, I'm like, you know, whatever, five, six, seven, whatever. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> Shows my parents letting me watch Beavis and Butthead at that age, but whatever. Yeah, you definitely see it go away. And I remember even by the time I was like in high school, you know, you're beginning to see you know, a fight for number one on TRL between like Backstreet Boys and Limp Biscuit, and like my dumb mind is like, well, I like guitars, so I'm rooting for Limp Biscuit, but really, like, they're both like major label acts. I actually got MTV too. I didn't have cable growing up, but this is like a, a really random specific. Uh, I didn't have cable growing up, um, but we would get MTV two, but for like a couple years after nine eleven because the transmitters were on the Twin Towers, and I guess they started transmitting from somewhere else. So after 9-11, my like, non-cable could get uh, MTV2 for like four years until, and this there was a really big snowstorm, and then it never came back again. I mean, if I recall correctly, the programming of MTV2 was mainly sort of like alternative rock. And so, I mean, clearly, like in the mid-2000s, I mean, that's exactly what you want to be tuned into so you can hear all such great bands like Creed and all them. Trapped. When I worked at MTV News, we had, I got, eventually got access to like the archives. So I was oh. able to go through the, MT I could, we can talk about this online on another time. But like, I was able to go through those. And the MTV2 ones for a lot of like bands, like The Strokes, the Yeah, Yeah, it's all this yeah. kind of fun stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of, there was a lot of great like posts. Again, you mentioned 9-11. A lot of great like, post 9-11 early aughts New York era footage that could be all that goes back to NC2 and obviously those bands were like were on were not on like not DIY bands in any, any real sense but again that's like a venue that by 2012 doesn't really exist for any of these kinds of acts and it just again further says that unless you are Britney Spears or someone of that level there is no space for you on like television well let me caveat this. White television, because BET still exists, and BET was still showing music videos, at least into like the early 2010s with like more regularity. But again, in that sense, it's like slow. It was just slightly slower to that transitional pivot. But that is something I, I just now catching myself. I didn't want to mention that. No, yeah, that that's a great that's a great point. I would also even like throw in like CMT into that. I think yeah. that they also were like having like a few hours dedicated to you know like alan jackson videos or whatever i i yeah yeah that's interesting so we've got this kind of consolidated we've got cd boom we've got major label consolidation we've got promotion 
and the increasing cost promotion, we've got the increasing lack of smaller scale venues through which non-major labels could get access, easy access to the public. So what you have is this kind of massive system that's just like just gushing money. And so then what what happens to it? Because clearly it doesn't keep gushing money for forever. Yeah, so I guess it goes back to kind of a similar question that we were, that we were talking about around disco, which is that at a certain point, people stop buying these records. And I don't, and I, and I don't want to say it was that simple that people stop buying like the Britney Spears or the, in, in the Instincts or whatever, but I think at this point we can kind of say, and you could have said this in the 90s, in the, in the 2001 actually, that boy bands and that kind of, kind of pop music is, is super ephemeral. And unless it is a Madonna, Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, I, I, honestly, unless it is an artist of that kind of caliber, and, not, and when I say caliber, I also don't want to say like quality. I also want to say like in context, like artists that came up in the 80s with an understanding that, that we are, want these artists to tour, we want them to sell records, we want them to be a lasting project that can be in the mold of a, of a rock band in a sense, but have sort of the pop sort of like reach, have sort of the pop reach and have that be the demographic. Like unless like, artists are built to do that function, then they are. And then you'll just sort of have what happened in the 90s where you have these big pop acts. And I would throw in, um, I would throw in Limp Biscuit and some of those kinds of bands as well, where you have these sort of like moments. And then once they sort of lose cultural relevancy, the sales start dropping precipitously. Now, folks will point out, like I remember reading some stories where it say that like, well, in college campuses that had Napster, CD sales and stuff were, were dropping. And like, I kind of would concede that that probably is true in a sense that like people probably, some folks probably were buying less music, but also plenty of folks were buying more music because they were experiencing off Napster and all of that. To me, it's much more that by the time you have all this stuff sort of build up and then once there's not the continuous like sales aren't able to sort of continue, they're just gonna start tumbling. Now when everything is built up to that high level of degree, it has a bigger fall that it can sort of like, S, like sort of fall down. Like disco didn't really like, the disco bubble really wasn't that bad. Like disco sales, sales went down, but like they sort of like plateaued after a couple of years. It really wasn't like that things burst and then like the industry was on the verge of entire collapse. Where like in the record industry, during the financial crash, it's perfectly reasonable if someone was like, I don't know if music's gonna really exist. Now, I would, it'd be hard to imagine a music industry not existing, but the amount of like revenue, like year over year revenue loss that was occurring did sort of show that like, there's no, this is a free fall and there's nothing stopping the free fall right now. Where at Disco, the free fall was stopped fairly quickly even before the introduction of CDs and stuff like that. Yeah, so, so, so it is important to say like, what you said, right? That, that down, illegal downloading does impact record sales at some level. Now, we could talk about the ways in which, as we did at least a little bit already, right, that, that, that by making products that are so expensive, by doing, you know, this whole idea of the war against the single, where if you want to hear who let the dogs out, as I think that they talk about in, in an Appetite for Self-Destruction, if you want to buy, hear who let the dogs out, you have to pay $18 for one song, by creating the kind of transactional music industry, you, you do have like a fair bit of fan anger 
But but I also like I think a, a major another thing uh, of the story is that it seems to me that the music industry basically just gets fucked up by the tech industry, right? That music, like and this is something we've talked about a lot in the show too. Music is the killer app, right? Music is the thing that makes people want to do other stuff. In the '30s. Music was why people bought records. And then it was why people bought radios. In the 60s, it's why people buy cars. Not exclusively, but like the whole like record car thing. Or sorry, sorry, radio car thing. In like, I don't know about you guys, but like the entirety of my relationship, and I, clearly I'm, I'm like a self-described, like, you know, I, I'm not a representative sample. But like, like burning CDs was one of the first things a lot of people did on the internet. That and porn, right? It's music and porn. And the, you know, and the same thing with uh, the internet. It's like the first thing people do is download music and porn. And like these are just like leading things. And that some of what happens to the record industry, it seems to me, is that like people spend a lot of money on, on dial up <laughs> and they spend a lot of money on CD burners. They spend a lot of money eventually on iPods, none of which goes to the record companies. Yes. I, I want to like give like one step back before hopping back into that. It's um, the CD, the single thing is very important. I think Avatar for Self-Destruction harps on this a lot. And I think it's actually really worth harping on it that CD single, like the CD single, like the example that I think it describes that, I don't, I don't, I don't know if the book describes it or if it's um slates, slates like hit parade describes. Where That's it's a great that, One of the best episodes of that show. Um, it's that the earliest example of this was like the MC Hammer, like you can't touch this, and then eventually Vanilla Ice is Ice Ice Baby, where they like created like vinyl singles, which were simply like like the dance, like for like DJs, but there was no CD single, there was no like cassette sing, like. Let me sorry. There were singles of these, but they were not at the quantity that would actually impact sales. The idea was that we have these so we can chart potentially, but it's mostly that we want to push people to buy the album. And I think when to what you were sort of saying about sort of like the death of the culture of music consumption, if the industry itself is saying we need you to pay nearly twenty dollars to your ice ice baby. And also, we do not want you to engage with music in a way that builds community or real, like, engagement. Then I don't know how you don't see that as a 10-year-long project eventually having some, like, chickens come to roost here. So, like, when someone is given the option of buying a single on, like, not buying, but, like, downloading a single via Napster or very quickly buying a single via iTunes, you can't tell me that that's not... Like, that like makes total sense why consumers shifted that behavior very, very quickly. It's like, oh, well, I'm not going to pay all this money for an album if I know I can just get the single somewhere. And especially when, again, it's like the, promote, the amount of cost to promote those singles is disproportionate to how much they're going to get back in return. Because when you're tra- paying like seven figures to promote a, DS- a Destiny's Child song, that is assuming you're going to get CD money in return, not 99 cents from I, from Apple in return. And that like gap to me explains a lot of the issues of the industry's revenue like freefall throughout the 2000s is that instead of getting $18, they're getting a dollar and that $17 difference is what is what should be sort of more sought out rather than the idea of like mass in, like mass catalogs. Because I think one thing that I'll, this is my last point on this is that 
as we get further and further from the Napster moment and further and further from piracy being in the mainstream discourse of music, or the recorded music industry at least, it becomes clear to me that like most people were not just going to hoard an entire like har- like terabytes of music. A terabyte, yeah. That's just not <laughs> that me. average. Me. Yeah, <laughs> but like that's not the average music consumer. Like the consumers that they were getting to rebuy music catalog weren't buying, weren't like all of a sudden downloading everything. No, like those folks were simply bought the catalog they needed to buy and the music industry sort of left them behind after a certain point. And then so it's sort of, so that's why it was always strange to me to sort of think that like the idea of someone hoarding music Again, hoarding in music in this context are very loose words, but hoarding a bunch of MP3 files is the equivalent of like stealing like a thousand CDs from a store. It just, there are false equivalencies that the industry really tried to lean heavily on. And I think actually did a very good PR campaign to make people believe that. I mean, as a kid, I definitely did not download things legally because I thought it was bad and immoral. Wow. Wow, that that's cool. <laughs> that's yeah. good. Good on yeah, you. Good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I would just I would just like add like just in this whole like digging your own hole or like the the music industry digging its own hole like narrative. Just two small things like you know I worked at record stores and I remember CD singles being somewhere in the range of like five ninety nine seven ninety nine and you're getting like one song and like a remix. And of course, that's just a marketing ploy because they don't want you to buy that. They want you to buy the nineteen dollar one. But then that's kind of come back into like to like bite them in the ass, basically, uh, for all the reasons that you just laid out. You know, it's also interesting too because, I mean, this is probably a, this is really small. This probably speaks more to like weirdo record collectors, like maybe like Sam and I or whatever. But you know, I mean, I I end up downloading like troves and troves of music, but like. Not like the Britney Spears where like the record, you know, I was like, you know, I was like, I want to hear what like, you know, Stockhausen sounds like. And but I, I'd have to go to my record store, wait for like the twenty four ninety nine like, you know, CD to come in the mail or I could just go and like download it right away. You know, it's like they seem to sort of, yeah, the sort of they didn't they weren't interested in the smaller market of people who like do create community around you know extensive sort of like music collection you know so once again just like a small aspect of of them just you know i guess kind of once again like kind of digging their own hole in a sense I, I mean i also wonder just thinking about like um if you think some ways in which like you could have like a, a multiple things coinciding at once that create this downturn, right? And one of the things that you have, it seems to me, with this consolidation is a record industry that's less capable of pivoting and less open to new cultural inputs at the same time that the generation of executives who are running it, who came up through rock music, are maybe aging out of like their maximum viability i don't want to be like ageist here but the question is like whether they had the same feel for what was going on and, and so because i was thinking like you know th- that gap right that that dollar 18 dollars gap you're talking about matters less if there's more bands that people want to buy millions of people want to buy the whole record of and like this is like a very like maybe like rockist perspective but like if somehow like music and uh, technology shifted, so like 1992 was 2003, like I wonder if you, and so you get this really exciting cohort of bands putting out full rock albums. And part of me wondering is like, you know, you could imagine a music, I'm thinking about the most exciting artists in 2003, and it's like, it's G-Unit. It's, it's the dip, it's Dipset, right? 
And so the music industry, and like, if they had made it so that you could buy a $7 G-Unit mixtape in every Walmart, and they produced seven a year, like, they would have printed money, like, and people would have bought it. But I'm wondering if there's a certain thing where, like, they were unable to make the kinds of adjustments necessary, partially because they were unable, they were no longer, because of consolidation, they were no longer in touch with what was happening musically in the same way. Yeah, it's. I think just to add to that, it also just it just seems like once again like the way they approached it. You know, I mean, they like the, you needed an album to have like a hit single, and that's all they cared about. Get it? Get me a single, and some they'll buy the nineteen dollar. You know, us will will buy the nineteen dollar, you know, CD instead of like, hey, what if we actually like you know create like an actual full album here that's like actually you know like listenable all the way through and not like you know 24 songs by collective soul or some shit i don't know whatever but yeah i don't know it's it's interesting it just seems like seems like they really it's interesting in our discussion we keep coming back to this the the 18 the 19 dollars cd and like you know a very simplified you know too long didn't read version i feel like like why did this happen it wasn't napster it was the 19 dollars cd you know like, that's why like to me it goes back to consolidation because that the industry by the 90 by the late 90s was essentially like only a handful of companies and again, these handful of companies, as Sam mentioned earlier, are not big in the way that record, like major labels were big in the 60s or the, or the early 70s, but they're big in like a, the footprint of Universal Music Group was the globe. It wasn't, oh, we can get your record across the entire United States to all the various chains and sort of record stores that need it to be gotten. We can get your record to Australia, Japan, South Africa. I have to not question about South Africa, but like I, we can get your, your CD across the entire globe. And the point is that we're trying to get artists that can get your, that can sell across the entire globe potentially after a certain point. So it's sort of that it's harder. And then that makes it harder to even have the idea of there being albums that, that, that exist in the same way they did in the, in the 90s. I think like one of the things that people correctly like point out how technology changes music and, the, and how music, the like, different formats of music and how like different genres. But also I would sort of say that like, so I guess it's hard to imagine Britney Spears in 1977 existing in the same way. Like you can imagine that there's obviously sort of like parallel sort of like solo like female pop singers in that in that time but it's hard to imagine britney spears having the cultural relevancy in the late 70s that she would have had in the late 90s obviously because there are a lot of cultural re reasons why but also the idea of a britney spears being that like hey there's a pop singer that is going to have massive single 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 where you're going to be buying the cd is not how people would have processed music only 20 years prior and that doesn't seem like that long or that big again these sometimes feel like splitting like like splitting hairs but it is a fairly big difference in the idea of hey we're going to essentially throw a lot of eggs of our industry into a dozen 17 to 22 year olds rather than we're going to put some of our eggs into these very big rock bands who are who certainly represent a lot of sales, but they don't represent the sale to the same degree that like Britney Spears or Eminem even. Eminem in like the early 2000s was selling 10 million records. Like that is a, a lot of volume that's all of a sudden being put in a single artist in a way that wasn't at all happening in the 60s or even to, into the 70s. Really. So uh, if we've kind of deconstructed like the Napster 
uh, is the devil, Sean Fanning, destroy the music industry narrative. And we've been kind of looking at the structural forces that create this boom and then kind of looking at all the reasons why it would go down and then the ways in which the music industry also, like you said, it's a huge footprint universal. And so if you've got, that's overhead, right? You've got to pay that staff, which means that you're hemorrhaging money. If you build a giant, like a, a giant system and all of a sudden you're not making money, that system costs money. But so I guess if that's not true, um, and we talked a little bit at the beginning of the show about why the tech industry maybe would like this narrative, but it's also interesting that the music industry likes this narrative. And it's an embarrassing narrative for the music industry in some ways. It's like a teenager and your own customers turned on you and nearly destroyed you for over a decade. And I guess, you know, you're one of the people who I think is most qualified and qualified to kind of answer this like why do you think like why why is this narrative been so useful to them it makes it so they don't have to take responsibility it's one of the best parts about the narrative of blaming it all on napster is that it, they the music industry did no wrong they just happened to be just in the bad place at the, they just happened to be at the wrong spot place at the wrong time it's like oh well there's no way we could have controlled that as someone is going to create free music who would have known no way we could have known that and oh, there's no way we could have like changed that. It's like that's like allows them to sort of, it's like it allows like all the like wrongs. I'm gonna say wrongs in the sense of like the consolidation, the deregulation. I I, I want to go back to deregulation because I do want to like say that like throughout the 70s and into the 80s in trade publication, music executives are fighting for deregulation. They want that to happen. They want there to be less radio regulation. They want there to be less regulation across entertainment industries. Like, they wanted this to happen. It's the same way throughout the 80s, they are courting Wall Street. They are desperate for bank money. Like, I remember one of my favorite quotes was someone just sort of being like, yeah, like the music industry, this I think like 85, it's like the music industry is finally matured enough that we can invest in it like sort of like a normal American industry. It's finally one we can sort of put our hopes into. And I was just like, Ah, yeah, that's really what you guys are trying to get, like, trying to get to here. That's really what you guys are trying to want, like, you want to do here. So I think, like, that to me is why, because otherwise, you have to start reckoning. You're like, why did, this, why did CD sales go, why did CD prices get so high? Why did we allow for such consolidation across various parts of the industry? And if you just say a teenager blew up the industry, none of those questions have to be answered. And in a way, right now, like, at the music industry sort of returns, it offers such a smooth transition now where it's like, oh, well, we were doing so good in the 90s. Everything was super great. And then all of a sudden there was this tech disruption. But now actually working with technology, us and Spotify and Apple and Amazon, and Alphabet, all our good friends have been able to return us back to prosperity through like share, like sort of a shared understanding of how to make the industry work better rather than it be sort of an antagonistic relationship between them. And I think that's kind of essentially why. It assuages like blame and it assuages like having to deal with any responsibility for what actually sort of happened there. I'm really I'm really interested, like, you know, what would have happened if, you know, CDs were like actually like affordable, like, you know, in nineteen ninety nine, like whether or not whether or not it would have been. I think it would have, but I wonder not what would have happened on such a huge level. But yeah, you bringing it more to the present as you're as you're noting, I think the fact that they've become bedfellows with these streaming services just is proof in itself that this whole Napster conversation or narrative is bullshit. And when we 
go back and look like you know napster was trying to make deals with these labels and yeah and so you know it's like well so now you're cool with the streaming but like back then you weren't like you know obviously like yeah i think that that just proves your point yeah i mean i i i've i've made this argument and i know i've been called a bit like being a little like um techno deterministic with some, with some of this because it is hindsight 2020 to say that like hey, Napster was trying to do deal with labels. Hey, what do you know, 20 years later, they essentially did the exact same thing and it's what's happening. But I actually think it's a pretty, I don't know, I, I, I feel like my personal reading on this is that if you go through that a lot of that stuff, some labels were willing to work with Napster, some labels were not. And I think it's sort of a back and forth. And I guess like to myself, as I sort of like try to, I wish I, wish I ha- honestly have, have done more reading to have a better term for it, but like the balance of power of the industry, I think is very important to understand how we ended up getting to the Spotify world out of the Napster world. Because the record industry with Napster had a lot of power. So it was actually, in a sense, able to negotiate the terms out with Napster to be like, hey, we want you to do X, Y, Z. And if Napster wasn't able to fulfill that, Napster would have been sued into the ground. And ultimately, Napster wasn't, profitable it wasn't making money and it was sort of it was a massive shit show of a company barely like barely barely survived so it fell apart and so in some ways it's like oh well they didn't like they, it's like oh well maybe labels never really wanted streaming they would have much rather have like had their own streaming platform which was like press play and music net in the early in the early 2000s and it's like to me like that is always to me the big like red flag in terms of sort of the napster narrative is that like within a year of napster closing they had two music streaming platforms, quasi-platforms, that essentially were doing what Napster was proposed to do only a year prior. And then throughout the rest of the 2000s, be it MySpace, be it YouTube, be it Pandora, the record industry created a very simple model for us. If we cannot own the platform that create that sort of how people are engaging with music, we're going to fucking make sure that they are coming to it on our terms. So you get them strong arming YouTube to eventually get, like deal with YouTube and Pandora and all these other platforms that emerge. And now the counter argument would be that like they fucking hate YouTube and they don't like Pandora and they're really upset with having to always do those deals. And it's like, yeah, but that's a much better trade off to simply say that those companies know they have to work with major labels. They don't exist without major labels. So the, a lot of, to me, a lot of that brinksmanship is a lot of posturing, honestly. I honestly feel like this is my big, this is my last point on this. Like, a lot of this is posturing. There's a lot of posturing that, ha- that happened throughout the 2000s to sort of place blame onto these tech companies as hurting music or whatever. But that was just so they could probably go in behind scenes and be like, okay, you see how they're talking about you in the press. We need to get, we need to get a better view out of it. And that's what I feel like a lot of this ends up sort of happening. And then thus, when Spotify actually sort of takes off, and then you have Apple Music, Tidal, YouTube being on board. It's like once all these other like platforms are now fully on board with streaming idea, it makes it so simple to have these deals happen. It's why Universal and Spotify just signed a new deal like a couple of weeks ago. Because what do they have to argue about? It's like... All Spotify wants, needs to do to Universal is say, hey, we're going to give you some more marketing space and we're going to allow you guys to market your artists more on our platform. And Universal's like, well, cool. There are, again, there are only three major labels now. So as long as we get equal billing to promote our artists, we're fine if the overall royalties are lower because we know we're going to get a certain chunk of the pie 
every quarter. And honestly, I think about if I was an executive and all I had to do was to go into meetings and be like, so I know that like we could actually hack this out and fight, or you guys could just say, we're going to leave the numbers mostly untouched, give us a little bit more marketing budget, and we're good. That's, imagine that being your job versus what being a record exec in the 70s was. Where in the 70s, quarter over quarter, you had no idea how sales were going to actually go. Like, you could have a new KISS record, but is that going to be a big KISS record? Or is this going to be the one where it, where it starts bombing and all of a sudden they aren't making any money for you anymore? Now, you don't even need to really worry about that. Like, obviously, it's bad if an artist doesn't get streaming numbers, but you have such a massive catalog as, again, one of the three major labels that that's not really a big concern versus if you were at Casablanca in, like, the 70s and you're like, wait, if we actually aren't selling these records, we are screwed. Versus if you weren't selling records now, you as an individual, like, as an individual executive or individuals that work at these companies, you will be stressed, you will be concerned, and you will have, like, your head, like, maybe you lose your job, but as an overall entity, you're fine. You're good. And that's, sorry, that's like, that's my big rant on that. No, no, that's great. And, like, you know, we, we've, we've, uh, we've had you for well over an hour now, so maybe we can sort of, like, sort of, uh, ramp down a little bit and, uh, like, fall and, and start to wrap up a little bit. But, I, you know, it's interesting because the point you made where, yeah, ideally these major labels would like to have like total like vertical integration where like they control the streaming, you know, obviously that's the ideal, but the dirty secret is if I, if I understand correctly, is that these deals with these major tech companies ultimately like helps all parties involved Yes. when it comes to the companies, not the artists. And the dirty secret inside of that is that, also tell me if I'm wrong, but that actually these labels are making a bigger percentage off streaming than they were like of record sales, I think, or something like I remember reading something in an article that Sam sent me about something about how like the percentage that artists make versus like what the labels are making is like is like actually like greater now. I, I would believe that I honestly would have to sort of like go like do a little bit more research. Well, the, po the point being they're making good money. But like, yeah, they're the like streaming has not made it so record labels are seeing less money than they were seeing previously. Or even if it was any less, it is not of any like reasonable or like important degree. Or right. And I do know, I do know that in, and you know, Sam, Sam pointed this out to me, like, you know, uh, just actually earlier today that by that it's predicted by 2030 that they'll be back at where they were pre 2000. You know, so like in 10 years, yeah. So it's like, you know, obviously I mean, that was a pre-COVID, that was a pre-COVID prediction. <laughs> uh, it's important to note. Right, right, right. I think COVID has been a very instructive of how much the industry has changed in the last like 40 years. Because if the coronavirus hit the music industry in the early, in the late 70s, that would have just wiped out the entire business. There would have essentially been radio and that was really it. Because obviously sales would slow, I guess as we're sort of seeing, sales would have probably slowly picked up as certain places reopened and certain shops reopened and stuff like that. But touring would have been entirely gotten rid of. And then even a lot of those smaller record stores now, depending on how much they wanted to follow social distancing guidelines, and all of that kind of stuff, some of those stores could have just been done at this point because they would have had no real sales. And they don't have sort of the big corporate overhead to sort of keep them up. It's like, oh, if we go three months without sales, we aren't a business anymore. 
And I think that would have been a much had a much more bigger impact on the record industry versus now where streams went down because people weren't traveling and going to the gym. But streams didn't go down because people couldn't afford streaming. That didn't that hasn't happened yet. All that has happened is that there was a behavioral change and that, that saw a, a dip in streaming. But as people's behavior readjusted to the new normal, then the money just kept rolling back in. And there's almost no way to envision how that stops happening. And I think that's sort of my big thought, especially right now, is the music industry is kind of, I don't want to say it's like bubble proof, because I know that's not really true, but it's really hard to imagine how the record industry would have repeated year over year decreases right now. It's really hard for me to see like how that would potentially happen with the current set of of how of sort of the current political economy. Yeah, I agree with you. It seems like it's probably going to eventually possibly get what it what it wants, or you know, or it could because you're seeing also now Spotify pivot to podcasting because like they're having trouble figuring out a way to actually make a profit. You know, and you can see if they continue that way. I mean, it's hard to believe that they would ever like fully give up on the music streaming situation. But you do see like there's possibly and I'm no businessman, but possibly there's, you know, a door opening for these labels to like get even more control that they're always like pushing for. The thing that I think is also really interesting about what you, you were saying, David, um, is also about like. The, the use of this narrative to the music industry now because there's you know there's this whole like the idea of never letting a crisis go to waste right in capitalism and it kind of strikes me that that because of this narrative because the argument from the music industry is that this is an exogenous shock that it comes from outside of what they're doing that it's got nothing to do with consolidation it's got nothing to do with their own rapacious behavior during the 90s because they can play the victim and because they're kind of portraying themselves as, a, as an industry kind of prostate and in crisis and on the verge of destruction, um, and also because the, the, the past cyclical nature of the music industry has been, like, they never admit that, right? It's like, history started in 1985, the music industry had never declined before. Because of all those things, they are kind of able to say that they're powerless, that they're doing the best they can to make sure the music that you love keeps flowing. And because of that, it seems like they say, well, we had to make the deals we have to make. We got to keep this ship going. And it means that they have this perfect cover for the kinds of deals and the kinds of extractive behaviors that we've that they were doing in the 90s and that they've continued to do today, that the sense of the crisis totally erases all the continuities between 1995 and 2020, and the fact that in some ways the biggest change that, that created the bubble in the first place, consolidation, has continued apace, that we're down from five to three now, which is an insane number of companies to control music <laughs> yeah i mean i think so i think that's actually something that i i would just want i want to give us a quick example of the all right just like looking back at the ra website because there's a small point i definitely want to make here about the cd sales for like one small thing is that cd sales peaked like not peaked but cds like so like like cd format sales like like peaked and like like sorry total format sales peaked in 1999 before you start getting to the digital era, things peaked in 1999. But if you end up looking at the RIA website or those like infinite graphs from like music from 1973 to present day, music sales like really 
peaked around like 1994. 1994 to 1999, it's sort of like essentially kind of a flat line. It's like some years it goes up, down, but it's very like, it's sort of, it's sort of a really tight band of a few percent. Where if you look at the actual revenue, again, in 1994 to 1997, it's like fairly flat. It actually rose down in 1997, but then starts going back up in 1998, 1999, and then it goes back down in 2000. And I guess I wanted to sort of say that to say that like actual sales for stuff did actually peak, but it didn't peak with Napster or anything like that, it peaked back essentially once people sort of got used to the CD. Like there was essentially a peak of CD adoption. And then once that sort of happened, it was sort of smoke mirrors to try to keep revenue constantly going up, 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 which I think actually takes us to the point of today where a lot of music industry commentators end up pointing out, have now just sort of taken the tack to say that like this growth is not like infinite. This will not be like, like this will not be sort of exponential growth. Eventually we're going to hit peak streaming. And as we hit peak streaming, what's going to be the next thing to sort of make money? That's why there's all this talk of like video games, VR, live stream. Like there's all these sort of like rush to figure out what is going to be the next streaming. And I think, I think there's sort of an interesting shift, like an interesting discussions been happening across various spaces that I feel like I'm always sort of swimming in about like what should artists be kind of doing? Is it, do we need to be doing reform to the system? Do we need to just be breaking away entirely? Is everything just band camp here on out? Or like, what is it really that makes the most sense? And I think like to me, I guess I've sort of taken like sort of a two track thought on this, which is that the consolidation in the record industry and also the sort of, and the, I mean, there's a whole other episode of just the financialization of what is happening with Tencent, Liberty Media, and then yeah. Hypnos and all of those kinds of firms. Like what is happening there to me needs to be addressed because and there's almost no reason to assume that music as an entire business like as a thing that someone pursues day to day isn't affected by those choices so there needs to be some kind of addressing of sort of the consolidation across all spectrums be it radio be it record label be it publishing be it all of and then technology as well like consolidation needs to be addressed because otherwise the weight of all of those will eventually crush even what tries to exist outside of the, the mainstream at this point. But if you can't exist outside of the mainstream, I do think that stuff like Patreon, stuff like other, like other subscriptions and other things, to me, offer some solution. But increasingly, I was taken by your episode where you talked about, about sort of like the New Deal programs that were done for music. And I know I've talked to Sam about sort of the post- um, post World War II, American Federation of Musicians, sort of like efforts that were also sort of happening as well. That like there needs to be sort of to me a bigger rethink of music in long public as sort of a public good, and also more around sort of like how it can be sort of more ingratiated into the public sphere. Because as a private business, I just don't. When essentially at this point, when we have sovereign wealth funds investing into the catalogs of Blondie to sort of see like constant sort of like quarter over quarter like revenue, like growth. I just don't know how you could envision that leading to anything good. Like at that point, you have to start breaking it down from the, from the top because it's trickle down effects are so massive. And that's something that I feel Napster wishes it was doing something like that. Napster wishes it had that ability. But even Napster, it's funny, so I read the book that I, oh my God, I forgot the name of it already, but it's like a book about Napster from like 2003, earlier this year. And that book, 
it's so funny how small the people that worked at Napster's visions of music could be when I see just how much other firms have figured out ways to sneak into music. Like private equity is like rolling music have been so fascinating to me because like they really, it took a while, but they basically figured out that like, hey, we just invest in publishing, just put the money there, uh, no one's gonna notice it, and then it'll just sort of keep pulling, it, pulling out cash. And artists are gonna think, what do they have to do with me? And it's like, well, what's gonna happen? This is my last sort of thought on this, and I think you guys hinted at it when you were talking about hypnosis, that when there are large firms who have no connection to the music industry, but own massive, important music industry-built catalogs, start going to these tech firms to say, hey, if you want Blondie, if you want Barry Manilow, you have to start paying us more money. And they'll be like, no. And then instead of it sort of being a sort of like gentleman's agreement that like, hey, we have sort of a truce that exists here. Some of those firms may or maybe not, again, capital can probably be self-aware enough to not do this. Those firms could just say, hey, we're going to step away and just take away all that catalog. Because they don't represent artists, they represent pension funds, they represent sovereign wealth funds. And all they're really looking at is just to get a few more dollars out of this. So, and that's the kind of music industry we're like veering very, very quickly towards. It's one where musicians don't really even have a say in any of this really. It's like, it's a music industry, but it really is not backed or supporting music. I mean, musicians at all. I can't wait for uh, you know the lawyers to come knocking on my door with a cease and desist letter when I'm spinning my Blondie record one night, uh, asking for uh, you know uh, royalties. Uh, no, you make these are all great points, and I can't help but think you know uh, the the possibility of like a union or something. But it, it's just so absurd when it comes to music because as somebody who like watches a lot of sports, you know, oftentimes you know there's wow, you know, so and so, you know, Mike Trout makes four hundred is going to make four hundred million dollars in like ten years. But if you look at the larger industry of baseball, it's like you know these guys deserve that much. And yet when you look at music, you have this industry that's just making millions and millions and millions of dollars, and yet very few musicians are even seeing like a fraction of that but uh we've had you for a long time and this is like a a a conversation that can continue in many directions we hope to have you on again but uh david turner tell us where we could uh read your work and follow you uh and follow you yeah so my name is david turner you can find me at penny fractions on twitter and you can just search type in penny fractions into google and you'll find my newsletter it comes out almost every wednesday every wednesday morning eastern standard time and yeah i write about all these topics and they're all very very fun also i guess i'll throw a disclosure i work at soundcloud which i'm sure you could totally tell by my opinions expressed here previously but yeah i work at soundcloud (laughs) i just feel like i feel like there's probably like some twitter narrative who's just like well, he's obviously a shill for this company. And I'm just like, well, I mean, sure, why not? We're all shill for something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're very happy to have you on. Thank you so much. Uh, You're listening to Money for Nothing. Please rate and review us, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you.